This is our summary of the SECURE 2.0 Act of 2022, looking at uh, what's developing from the perspective of a tax professional who may have to implement a number of these with clients. Now, we're going to talk about this, as I said, mainly from the perspective of a tax professional. This is not really geared to individuals looking to understand what this means for the 401k plan, what this might mean for IRAs and, the, and et cetera. But this is going to be looking more from the perspective of a tax professional, a CPA, EA, an attorney, who is looking at working with clients who may need to look at these changes and make some decisions about how their own tax situation is going to be handled, what if they're an employer, they're going to be doing about their employer plans, and other structures of this sort. Now, this particular bill, the SECURE Act 2.0, of 2022 was included as part of the Comprehensive uh, Appropriations Act 2023. This came in basically the same way we got 2019's original SECURE Act. Now, this is a follow-up to that act, which essentially deals with retirement accounts, and this is a follow-up there. Um, what this one has does not have a headline change, like the repeal of the stretch IRA that we had in the 2019 SECURE Act, Rather, these changes are a little more, uh, you know, let's say, you know, they, they don't make as big a bang for each one, but there are a lot of changes in this bill. And one thing to be important is uh, to note is we're not going to be going through every single change in the bill here today. There's way too much for that. I am going to be doing two hour sessions uh, that are going to go into the bill. But even there, I'm looking at that and going, well, you know, uh, if we really covered everything, which I'm not sure most people need everything covered, if we really tried to cover everything, this thing would be a four, maybe even eight hour session if you actually got deep into the weeds. Um, the effective date ranged from immediate to a number of years down the line. That's incredibly important if you're following along in this case. You need to watch and see when the effective dates are because they are not at all consistent. Some of these will be many years down the line. Some of them took effect on the day the bill was signed on December the 29th. So that's important to understand because that December 29th date is the uh, essentially the date of enactment. And if you actually read the bill or read summaries of the bill before it got signed, you're going to see a lot of things reference date of enactment. Now, as I expected, it was signed before the end of the year. It kind of needed to be because the government spending authority ran out on December 30th, which is before the end of the year. And secondly, a number of the provisions in this bill clearly contemplated the bill would be signed in 22 so that things were effective for tax years beginning after date of enactment would be effective in 23. Had this thing spilled over into 23 to be signed, then all of those provisions would have kicked back a year. So basically we have things coming in. Some of them have come in. Some of them came in on the 29th of December or the 30th of December, usually day after day of enactment, and others came in two days later. But we have a number of those, and then others aren't coming for a while. So you need, need to be aware of that. We'll look at selected key issues for this summary. Uh, there are lots of other provisions you probably want to look over in this bill. So make, make sure you're aware of that. We're going to try to cover some of the bigger ones here. And I'm going to kind of cover them somewhat in a topical order, which is not quite the way they appear in the bill. So fair warning that. And probably the one that's going to get the initial press and certainly probably has the most interest for a lot of people is that we have the increase in age for the required beginning date. 
If you remember back in 2019, the SECURE Act took what had been the 70 and a half age rule. Remember, a required beginning date prior to the SECURE Act of 2019 was April 1st of the year following the year in which the taxpayer attained age 70 and a half. And there are some exceptions in there. If you were in an employer plan, you would not separate it from service and you weren't a 5% owner, then you could hold off on taking distributions from that employer's plan until such time as you actually separated from service. But otherwise, it was age 70 and a half. The original SECURE Act raised that to age 72. That was effective beginning in 2020. Now, as we know, given what happened in 2020 with the pandemic, the suspension of required minimum distributions for that year, et cetera, a lot of that transition kind of got covered up by the fact that lots of things were happening. Uh, and so, you know, those who would have first had their distribution come in 22 didn't have that happen anyway, for the most part. Therefore, in the end, it turns out for them, in some ways, nothing changed from if the bill hadn't been passed, since the suspension of RMDs for 22 would have been enough to basically kick them to the following year. They just couldn't wait till April 1st of, in that case, uh, wait till April 1st of 22 three to be able to make that first distribution. But that was really the only major change we had there. This bill continues on with this change. So, and there is a wording problem here, so be ready for it. I'm gonna go through though the actual wording here. Uh, first, anybody who did not attain age 72 by December 31st, 2022, and who attains age 73 before January 1st, 2033, the age will increase to 73. So no one will basically have a April 1st, 2024 required beginning date. It doesn't matter. Either you attained age 72 in 2022, in which case then April 1st of 23 is required beginning date, or you're not going to attain age 70, you're not going to attain essentially age 73, right? In 2033. You know, if you are 2020, I should say 2022, 2023, get my dates right. You're not going to attain age 73 in 2023 unless you attain 72 and 22. So that means we have one year where nothing happens. We will then have people begin hitting their RMD or the required beginning dates again, beginning with those that turn 73 in 2024. That That's going to be the key issue there. Okay. Now, the other quirky problem here is we later increased age 75, and this is where we have a slight mess. The law states it applies to those who attained age 74 after December 31st of 2032, not 22 as the screen says there. So, okay, well, okay, so that's fine, except we then go on and say that because of the way that's written, because the way the law is written, it also suggests that applies to those who don't reach age 74, you know, who basically who don't attain 74, 20, or 2031, 2032, uh, you're going to find out that these individuals attain age 73, uh, basically these, those who are born in 1959 attain age 73 in 2032, but they also attain age 74 in 2033. So that gives them two required beginning dates. That's a potential problem. Now we expect Congress will fix this law 
And by that, I mean, we're going to get a technical correction. We obviously have a decade to get it. I'm betting that, in fact, we're going to be seeing the effective date uh, for them being, you know, the 59 people will end up having to uh, basically take their RMDs based on attaining age 73 in 2032. And those who are born in 1960 will be the first group that will kick back to age 75. But we'll see what Congress does. They have some time. And obviously, there's a little bit of time in there. But, you know, if you're born in 1959, you have clients born in 59, there'll be a little bit of uncertainty about when their required beginning date is going to be. Another major change, this was one that was uh, put in as an optional uh, in the original SECURE Act. We're now going to mandate, but we're going to have a lot of exceptions. So let's talk about this. For plan years, now this does not apply until plan years beginning after December 31st, 2024. So if your plan's on a calendar year, as large numbers are, that's going to be your 25 plan year. And again, this is plan year. Now, keep an eye on this bill. Some of these things are plan year based. Some of them are taxable year based. Plan year based things tend to look at the plan. Uh, taxable years tend to look at participants. So you have to keep it straight which one's which. So for plans, the plans are going to be required. These 401k plans are going to be required to automatically enroll employees. That automatically enrollment will begin at at least 3%, but not more than 10%. So this is going to be an opt out. Again, this is betting on, as I mentioned, we talked about this in the past, on the tyranny of the default. Most people will do whatever the default is. So when we talk about the tyranny of the default, a new employee comes in, they start working. By default, they're going to have 3% sent to the 401k. They will have a right to tell you, no, I don't want anything sent to the 401k. But that means they have to do something. And as we know, people tend not to do things. As well, this percentage must provide for an automatic increase of 1% for each following year until it reaches at least 10%, but not more than 15 And in fact, initially, you're going to be blocked from going above 10% uh, for a short period of time. Uh, that's quirky unless you're starting at 10. You want to start at 10 and take them to 15 immediately. They're going to keep you from doing that right away. But otherwise, we're going to be in this situation. So every year it'll go up. So that new employee I hire in 2025, they come in at 3%. Uh, in 26, they'll be at 4%. And we'll just keep going until at least they get to 10%. If they don't tell me to stop it, they don't say, no, I don't want it then every year we just keep raising the number. Again, Congress is betting on the tyranny of the default, causing these people to just automatically save in the 401k. Now that said, there are a number of plans that do not have to implement this. So let's talk about it. A huge exception is essentially every plan that existed on December 29, 2022, the date the, plan, the date the bill was signed into law. While your 401k plan, your existing one, can elect to go this route, nothing's going to stop them, uh, they're not required to. But if you establish a brand new plan here in 23, 401k plan, then when we get to 25, uh, you're going to essentially, it would appear, have to do this automatic enrollment option, right? Beginning in 25, it will become mandatory, okay? Also, any small businesses that have 10 or fewer employees. 
So if your business does, let's say has 10 or fewer employees, uh, you're not required. Now we'll have to see how we do that count and you know how we count the 10 people. Uh, it's not participants, it's said employees. So, you know, we're gonna have to kind of get the IRS to tell us what that means on we have to do it. And more importantly, you know, what do we do when we go over? You know, do we have to then, is it immediately following year or do we have to retroactively do things? We're gonna have to have some guidance there in that case. It also exempts all new businesses for their first three years. That means year four, you're gonna to have to do it. So your plan's gonna to have to, you know, if you want, don't wanna do it the first three years, that's fine, but your plan's got to be then amended in year four to start doing this. I'm not sure it's gonna be worth the bother. Uh, you know, I guess, well, if your business fails, but I don't know, most people are starting their business presuming it's going to fail. So that one I don't see as being a great, as big an advantage. It does allow it for a short period of time, but only that for that initial period to be there when we can get that. Governmental plans are exempted, right? So governments don't have to do this. Neither do churches. Church plans are exempted from this provision. Uh, so as I said, there are a lot of exempt plans. Uh, like I said, the big one is everything currently existing is exempt. So it'll be new plans, but it does appear to be new, new plans that start today. There all seems to be a little clarification, but it does appear that the plans exempted are only those that start today. The IRS could clarify that to say, well, we think Congress really means uh, those that existed that are put again after 24. So that's possible the way it's worded. I'll just warn you about that. So that's there. We make some major changes to the small employer pension plan startup credit. Now this applies beginning in 23. So again, this is taxable year because this is a plan sponsor issue, right? We're going to increase the credit from administrative costs from 50% to 100% of such costs for employers with 50 or fewer employees. We're still at 50% for those from 51 to 100 for the first three years. So it jumps it again, the limits are low enough. I'm not sure it's going to make a key difference to people. Uh, but it's there. And this one, again, is only for the first three years, once you've had it three years. And this, of course, is for a brand new plan. You cannot have had a plan, uh, can't say ever, because it's not really the way the law reads, but essentially you can't, you're, it's not going to help if you've had a plan for the last 12 years, you can't use this credit. That, but that was true back in the Secure Act. So made it a little more attractive to have 50 or fewer employees. We're going to see a couple of times that 50 employee list is used. So we're there. But then we add another credit. So this is a second credit for new plans. We're going to give a credit for employer matches up to $1,000 of match per employee who's not a highly compensated employee based on a percentage that decreases over the first five years. So the way that's going to work out is for the first two years, the year you establish the plan and the first year following, you're going to get a credit equal to 100% of the first $1,000 of match for every employee that's not a highly compensated employee. So basically not the owners and not those who make over certain income limits. But basically the rank and file, you're going to get up to $1,000. In essence, the government's going to match that for you. In year three, that'll drop to 75%. In year four, it drops to 50%. In year five, it drops 25%. And after year five, no more credits involved. So it'll be there. Now this matching credit also phases out. So those percentages though, you compute that credit, but then as you go above 50 employees, so that 50 employee number keeps showing up. 
As you go above 50 employees up to 100, we phase it out rateably. So when we get to the 100th employee, there is no credit allowed for the employer match. Uh, so that also goes into move there based on number of employees. Again, this is meant to encourage small companies by giving them certain subsidies. We also changed the savers match, right? The credit that certain lower income people got for contributing to an IRA uh, or, or employer plan was a tax credit. We're now gonna change it to a match. So we're gonna replace the current non-refundable credit with a new quasi-refundable one. But the big difference is generally, this is going to go into the retirement plan. So it's gonna be 50% of the individual's contributions to IRAs, employer retirement plans, and ABLE accounts up to a maximum $2,000 credit. So if they contribute 4,000, we could get $2,000 match from the federal government. Now this credit phases out between 41,000, 71,000 of adjusted gross income for married filing joint, between 20,000, 35,500, 20,500, 35,500 for single and married filing separate, and 30,750 and 53,250 for those that are head of household. The credit must be placed in the retirement account's federal matching contribution unless the credit's less than $100 and the participant elects to apply it on their income tax return but generally it's going into the retirement account. Remember previously they got that money personally, now it's going to the retirement account. The idea is we want to force them to save this money. We're going to have a little issue here. The IRA catch-up contributions will now be indexed for inflation. So 2024 will be the first year because this taxable year is beginning after December 31st, 2023 is when this will come into play. And yeah, just basically catch-up contributions are added to the list of things that are indexed for inflation and it will move in $100 increments. So, you know, you'll move up by $100 year after year. So you will be watching at the end of this year for the 2024 catch-up to see if it jumps the $100, right? So basically it needs to index its way up so it'd be more than $50 before rounding, $50 or more before rounding extra, and then we'd get our $100 jump. Now, this is a weird one here. We're going to get higher employer plan catch-up limits, contribution limits, for those age 60 to 63. Now, it's an odd age cutoff there. It's like, well, I mean, in normal retirement date for those, at least per Social Security these days, for those who are currently in plans for the most part, uh, you know, would be age 67 or very close. But they're going to say, no, 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 it's those age 60 to 63. So that, that's going to be the limit. It will apply for 2025 will be the first year that it applies. And definitely by then, everybody in this age range is going to have a Social Security retirement date of 67. But we're only allowing this for four years starting when you hit age 60. Right. And what we're going to do, if the plan allows for catch-up contributions, participants age 60 to 63 will be allowed a higher, will be allowed a higher catch-up contribution equal to the greater of $10,000 or... 50% more than the regular catch-up contributions. That'll be the key. This $10,000 amount is indexed for inflation beginning in 2026. So as I say, it's a little weird. It's only for four years. It's only for employer plans. So it's an interesting issue. And obviously it's going to take a few years until we get there. But you will be able to punch extra money in. But remember, when they get to age 64, they can no longer punch the extra money in. 
I have no idea. I have a feeling it's a budget issue as to why they're not allowing it to go above 63. And probably their theory was that rather than have it, let's say, be, you know, the four years leading up to age 67, which would have been their 64 to 67, uh, instead of allowing that, we're going to allow them a little bit more time for growth by pushing it back to age 60 through 63. Probably there's also an argument made that a lot of people may retire earlier than 67. And if you pushed it up to the later years, they might not have the earned income. So it wouldn't be in the plan. So whatever reason, it is 60 to 63. Other plan change. And again, just like this one is optional, but this could apply to contributions for plan years beginning after December 31st, 2023. So 2024 is the first year. Now we see a lot of this when something would require a plan amendment to implement. We're going to see 24 is going to be the effective date. That is something we see quite a bit in this law. Now, what you can do is use student loan payments can be used to qualify for the employer deferrals. So let's say I make a matching up to X percent of their income. Well, I can treat their payments, their qualified payments on their student loan as if they were put into the retirement plan. And then I can make my matching contribution to the retirement account even though they're paying down their student loan balance. Only my matching will get in there. Now, the other catch is they will need to be fully vested in this. We have a couple of other quirks that come into this, but it's one of those that you might want to study, especially as you may have, if you have trouble getting, you know, employees and your employees are, you know, college educated, they're coming in with student loans. You know, this may be a way to attract them in by offering this up. Now, this next one is interesting because I think it has an unintended uh, conflict with existing income tax law on what's considered a taxable fringe benefit. Or at least if it's not a conflict, it's like uh, people are, people are going to get blindsided by this little quirk. This will apply to plan years beginning after December, 30, December 29th, 2022. So effectively, if your plan's calendar year 23, you are able to do it right now. This does not require changing the plan because plan assets are not used for this purpose. The employer out of their own funds, out of the employer funds, is going to make these, make these incentives. And what it allows us to do in this situation is provide small incentive to employees who participate in the retirement plan. You cannot pay it from plan assets, but I could give the employees various little items, you know, if I want, you know, whatever I want to give them to entice them in. And the Senate summary suggests offering gift cards. Now, that much makes sense, right? So if you decide to participate in my, you know, in our 401k plan, I will give anybody that participates in the 401k plan a, you know, $25 Starbucks gift card. Okay, so you can go get yourself some lattes. Whatever you might want. Give you an Amazon gift card whatever you might want. So we'll do that. But here's where the catch comes. And it's a little weird. Um, the problem we have here is while I, okay, so I can do that. I don't disqualify the plan, but under section 61 of the code, generally 61A1, a uh, compensation that is considered taxable income to the employee includes fringe benefits. Now, again, it includes it as long as they're not specifically exempted. And that's something that, you know, the law sometimes does. But here's the catch. There is a de minimis fringe benefit exclusion under Section 132. Great. Think it might fit in there. It won't. Why not? Because 
the code, the one section 132 says openly that things like gift, you know, things like essentially gift certificates and gift cards are kind of taken over for the old gift certificates do not qualify as de minimis under the regulations. And this has been tested, court case a couple of years ago with American Airlines tested this as well, that, you know, there, in essence, it's got to be impracticable to account for. And the theory being a $25 Starbucks card is practicable to account for because it's 25 bucks. It's not like it's too much trouble where, let's say, if you went out in the old theory of giving everybody a turkey for the holidays, uh, you know, every one of those turkeys costs a little bit different because they're each slightly different in pounds. Uh, it would be a real pain to figure out exactly how much each one's turkey was and count for that. So you were allowed to just give the turkeys. But if you gave the gift cards to your local Kroger, and then you would have a problem because that $25 gift card to the Kroger, yes, it might be what would have paid for the food you otherwise were giving. Uh, that might have been the right number. But because that's 25, it could be easily valued because it's the same for every employee or we know what it is for everyone very easily because we're buying these gift cards that are issued only in a few different levels. Basically, that's automatically considered a cash equivalent that goes in income. So while it does appear I can give my employees Starbucks cards to participate in my 401k plan, what's going to end up happening, though, is going to have to throw those Starbucks cards onto their W-2s. And it's taxable, it's subject to withholding, it's subject to FICA. So we'll see if Congress comes back and eventually cleans that up, right? Because I don't know they really meant for that to work that way, but the way the law is written right now, that's how it would work. We have a number of penalty-free withdrawal provisions in the law, and in many cases, they allow us to pay the money back in certain cases. Now, this again is effective for distributions made after December 31st, 2023. This again will require some plan modifications and plans have to get to speed on this. That's why it's not immediately effective. A domestic abuse survivor can take a penalty-free distribution from certain plans for various reasons, including escaping an unsafe situation. Okay, It's a lesser of $10,000 or one half of the participant's account in this case. So that'll be the amount they can take. Now, again, we're just getting out of initially the 10% premature distribution tax. We're not getting out of the regular income tax, so keep that in mind. You can repay the distribution for up to three years. You'll get a refund of the income tax paid on the distribution. The three-year rule is there. They did get smart after fouling up with the birth and adoption rule, which we'll find out they patched. Uh, they did get they did get smart there and realized after three years, they can't get their tax back. So they probably you probably should tell them to put it back in within three years so we'd make that clear. Okay. There's also an exception for penalty for early distribution of qualified plans for individuals with a terminal illness. This is effective. This one is effective immediately, right? Um, no premature distribution tax for distributions made for an individual with a terminal illness. And this was a little bit more than expected. In many cases, terminal illness has been, you know, expected death within two years, et cetera. This is actually a seven-year rule. So if somebody has a diagnosis where it's expected to result in death, within the next seven years, even if they're not going to die next year, their distributions from the retirement plan can now start being made. And even though they're not yet age 59 and a half, they'll be able to take those distributions. My guess is this theory being, uh, they did seven years to give enough a look ahead time. If you have a diagnosis for something where 
it's likely, you know, that it's going to be fatal, but it, it doesn't advance super fast, but it's, you know, but we know where we're heading. Uh, if the doctor comes up and gives you the diagnosis, says, yeah, we expect this to be fatal within seven years, then you'll qualify for this not 10%. The idea being you could take your retirement money uh, and use it while you're still alive, uh, use it potentially to pay for some of the medical expenses or other issues that may be involved. So that's the exception we've got here for this category. We also have an exception for emergency expense withdrawals. Now this one, it gets deferred. As I said, watch effective dates. Terminal illness, we're good right now. Emergency expenses, this one's going to have to wait a year, right? In this case, you can take it from retirement plans, such as 401k plans. You can take it from IRAs, right? Those issues. It covers payments for emergency expenses, which are unforeseeable or immediate financial needs related to personal or family emergency expenses. And only one distribution per year for no more than $1,000 qualifies for this exception. You still have to pay the regular income tax on this distribution. You have three years in which you can put the money back in. And interestingly enough, you're not allowed to take an additional distribution out until that three-year period is over or you've repaid the first one. So essentially, you can take $1,000 out. You'll pay a tax on the $1,000. You will not pay the extra 10%. If you put the $1,000 back in, you get the income tax. You do it within three years. If you don't do it within three years, then fine, the tax is gone forever. But while we're waiting for that three years to see if you're going to pay it back, you will not be able to take another emergency distribution with the $1,000, you know, with basically with the exception from the tax. So the idea of this is to cover a short-term emergency. Is this concept where you could take the $1,000 out to, let's say, meet a unexpected $500 bill uh, that came up. You could then save to restore that $500 back to retirement account. And once you did that, you could then take another distribution. Now, my example there says, you know, it's no more than $1,000, which is true. And if you took the $500 one, it's not like you get to take another $500 within that three-year period. Once you take the 500, you got to get the 500 back in before you can go back in and take another distribution. So that could be interesting. Again, it's going to require plans to be modified. So it, again, it doesn't take effect until 24. We also have, uh, on top of this, we have a secondary method can be used if the employer wants to go for it. This again will be plan years beginning after 2023, so 2024. And this is a secondary option, okay? You can modify your plan, your retirement plan as an employer to offer non-highly compensated employees pension-linked emergency savings accounts. And we can automatically opt our employees into this account, but no more than 3% of their income can be deferred. And these accounts can never hold more than $2,500. Once you get to $2,500, we stop funding this account up, okay? Any additional amounts are redirected to the employee's Roth defined contribution plan. So it becomes, again, so it goes into that. And they're going to be treated like Roth. So the employee will still pay tax on this $2,500. So it'll be a Roth account, but they'll have it there. And then we can go into the Roth defined contribution plan. Now, as I said, since it's treated under Roth treatment, uh, what that means is the employee pays tax on it. That means if they withdraw this money out, then you know, and use it for the emergency to be for it relates to certain qualified emergencies, um, you know, they won't end up paying tax on that $2,500.
that they pulled out. It'll be under the Roth rules. We got some contribution increases for simple plans, but again, like normal, simple plans are never simple, so we have a more complicated increase. This will take effect for 2024 plan years, and it's going to increase the regular and catch-up contribution by 10%, but there's a, there's a catch. If you have no more than 25 employees, then it just does that, period. No problem. You can go up by that. If you have more than 25 employees, so 26 to 100, it only applies if the employer either makes a 4% match or makes a 3% across the board contribution. So as I said, there's a catch there in this case. So, and again, if you have a growing client who has a simple plan and they go beyond 25 employees, then suddenly their amounts they can contribute will go down unless the employer makes the additional contributions. So keep that one in mind. It is a bit messy. We also have a much simpler thing to keep track of. We're going to change the ABLE account age rule. This will be, now this won't take effect till 2026. Again, because states have to update their system. So that's why we're going to be hanging around for a while. Currently, you can only have an ABLE account if your disability occurred by the time the beneficiary attains age 26. Now we're going to push that back to age 46. So again, those who were disabled later, let's say they had an accident in their 30s, they could have an ABLE account established for them if they have the qualifying disability. Uh, it no longer had to be one that you had by the time you basically got to age, you know, you had to get it, you had to be disabled by age 25, right? Or basically by, by the end of the year, you were 25 before you turned 26. Now we're going to go to 46. That'll be our key issue. We also have an additional interesting one here. It's going to allow us to roll over certain 529 plan balances to Roth IRAs. Now, this is effective not this year, but next year. So don't go rush out and do it right now. It's distribution made after December 31st, 2023. It only applies to the 529 count itself has been open for more than 15 years. So you can't just put money in a 529 and then push it over into the Roth. You're going to have to have the account around for more than 15 years. Now, it doesn't say the balance had to be there. So if the 529 plan had some minor funds in it, as written, it appears that we could go ahead and fund that up if we had remaining funding space available in the 529, as we often do, and then use that to go into the Roth. Now, the maximum lifetime conversion is limited to $35,000 for each beneficiary. And it does have to be to the beneficiary's account. You can't change this and go to somebody else. It's got to be the beneficiary that gets it in that case. That's going to be key. The annual rollover is limited to the maximum IRA contribution amounts, but you ignore the AGI limits. So assuming the AGI limit wasn't gone, they didn't go over the AGI limit. Let's just presume that. If they had gone over AGI limit, what's the max contribution to the IRA, to the Roth IRA? And that would be the amount you could do. That's going to be your, your rollover. So it'll take you a few years to drain the 35 grand out, but you'll drain it out eventually. So this allows excess funds in 529s to essentially be moved into retirement accounts. Um, again, it doesn't allow huge amounts to go. It is 35,000, but it is something to be aware is there. This is an interesting rule because it reads like a tax break, but I think in practical terms, it's going to be a tax increase. So let's talk about what it is. This applies to taxable years beginning after December 29, 2022. So this will first apply to those in 2023 who fail to take the required minimum distributions from an IRA or retirement plan. 
right? Now, it used to be that penalty was 50%, but let's remember something about that penalty. It's 50%, but it could be waived in its entirety if you showed reasonable cause. And as far as I have never had, the IRS actually assess that penalty, actually say, no, sorry, you got to pay the penalty. I have always sent along, you know, the note stating that, yes, here's the 5329. Yes, we failed to take it, but we have good cause, et cetera, et cetera. We've never had the IRS come back and say, you know what? We don't like your cause. Pay the 50% in. Now, here's where it's a problem because the penalty was so high. Now we're going to have a 10% penalty if you correct it before the IRS comes in essentially and imposes the tax. So there's actually three different triggers there or, or less than two years. So we should say before they impose the tax or before two tax years have passed. So if you screw up in 23, right, you don't take it, then you could fix it in 24 or 25 and it would be 10%. Right. And the odds are the IRS will not get around to doing an exam by then. So theoretically, we can do it within two years and get it fixed. However, if you don't do it within the two years or you do it after the IRS has actually formally come in and assess the tax, then it's 25%. Right. Now, the key problem here is simple. The 10% penalty does not seem as draconian as 50. Will the IRS simply say, hey, 10%? And remember, you've got to file and pay that tax in order to get 10%. If you don't do that, you know, the IRS could come back later and simply say, hey, you know what? Not, not reasonable cause. Uh, we want 25. So I think this will be a revenue raiser. I do not think it's going to save the, I don't think it's going to be the taxpayer friendly thing you might expect. Now, if you're looking at the video version of this, keep in mind that while it only talks about the IRS imposing the tax, there is that two tax year rule behind it too. So again, if I screw up in 23, right, I need to get, I need to get the, a corrected return filed in 24 or 25 if I want the 10% penalty. Otherwise, I'm going to get the 25% penalty in theory if we don't get it done by, 20, by 25 or in 26. And that'd be the prior year the IRS would examine. So be aware of that penalty as it comes in. Right? So as I said, I really do think we're going to end up, this is going to be a tax increase, not a decrease. And I'm not the only one that thinks that way. I'll phrase it that way too. I've had other people talk about that as too. Now, here's the next neat one too. This is related, the statute of limitations for the excise tax on excess contributions and quote unquote certain accumulations. Certain accumulations is the penalty on you know, essentially not taking your required minimum distribution. That's the certain accumulations. Now, this again is effective immediately. And what it says is the statutes begin to run on the date the individual's 1040 was filed or would have been filed if no 1040 was required. That is a three-year statute for failure to take required minimum distributions. That's certain accumulations. So let's say you didn't notice that you hadn't taken the required minimum distribution. Uh, you didn't file the penalty, and now it's the IRS notices this five years out. Tough luck, IRS, generally. Now, for excess contributions, that one, if you put in too much, like you threw money into the Roth IRA and you weren't eligible to, that will be a six-year statute, not a, a three-year. So it'll be a six-year statute. 
And if there's bargain sales or certain abusive transactions, the statute won't begin to run until you file the return. So, but it means in general, a 5329 will have a cutoff date. It will be an earlier cutoff date for you to take RMDs than it will be for uh, any time you over-contributed to the IRA. But you'll still have a strong, you still have an actual cutoff date in the mix, unlike the past. If you don't need to file a 1040, then it's a date the 1040 would have been due had you had income high enough to require you to file it. Now, this next one, I just don't think the amount's high enough to make sense for most, but let's talk about it anyway. Uh, for taxpayers beginning after 22, so you could do this here in 23, we can make a qualified charitable distribution to a split interest charity. And that might sound like something you'd like to do. Some of your clients who have big IRAs maybe are charitably inclined. They might be the ones doing certain, um, you know, doing things like charitable remainder trusts and the like. They might like that structure. Well, you can now make a one-time in your lifetime transfer to certain split interest charities from an IRA as a qualified charitable distribution. And those will include the Charitable Remainder Annuity Trust, the Charitable Remainder Unit Trust, and Charitable Gift Annuity. So far, so good, but here's where the hitch comes. The maximum amount you can do that is going to be only $50,000. Now, and this has to be your only contribution into it. So it's like, um, yeah, that, that's not going to justify the, the additional work for a unit trust or an annuity trust, probably. Charitable gift annuity, I can see that working because that, that one's made the charities handling all the way. Uh, but even charities who handle unit trust or annuity trust and char charities are known to set those up for donors. Even they, I don't think you're going to want to mess with it on a $50,000 item. So again, theoretically sounds good. Practical matter, maybe charitable gift annuities, but I don't think anything else is going to make sense under that. We're also going to inflation index the annual qualified charitable distributions from IRAs, and that'll be effective for this year, which means we're going to have to get from the IRS what our qualified charitable distribution amount will be for this year. It's going to be more than 100 grand, right? That'll be key. We index that $100,000 limit for inflation, right? So that means the 2023 amount is going to be excess 100,000. That's when we got to wait for the IRS to give us guidance on how much will it be this year. This is where they patch the qualified birth and adoption distributions from the SECURE Act. It applies to distributions made after day of enactment of this act and retroactively the three-year period beginning of the day after the date such distribution was received. Um, yeah, that, that, that's going to be how it works for that issue. Weird title, the way that works. But SECURE Act created this class of distributions that were exempt from the 10% additional tax for premature distributions, but they were subject to regular income tax. Now, the problem obviously was that that regular income tax, while you could repay it for three years, um, the problem was, yes, I could put the money back in and there was no three-year limit on putting it back in. But if I didn't get it back in before the statute ran, which generally runs after three years, then I couldn't get my money back and that would just be dumb because I'm putting money that I'll eventually pay tax on again into the retirement account. So now they're going to make it a strict three-year limit on that, fixing it. They did that with later distributions. Um, again, this is to assure the taxpayer actually makes the repayment in time to get the money back, uh, get the taxes refunded. Okay. We also have a special rule for sole proprietors with no employees who do not currently have a 401k plan in place. Okay. 
This will be effective for plan years beginning after December 31st, 2023 for 2024 plan years. This is probably because plans need to get, you know, uh, plan, you know, plan advisors, plan sponsors, plan administrators, etc. You got to get the language ready for this because it's going to be a weird one. Okay. Now you have to be a sole proprietor. This will not work for the one for the whole 100% over NAS corporation has no other employees. It does not work. It's got to be a sole proprietor. The sole proprietor must have no employees. So it's a very limited exception. It's going to be a special case in that case. And it's only for the first year. The employee deferral and the employer contribution can both be made up until the extended due date of the proprietor's tax return. So we get the full extension in that amount. So we go all the way up to that structure, right? It's going to work that way. In later years, the standard rules will apply. You got to make your deferral timely. So, you know, by the date it would have been required to be put in as you December 31st made your deferral. So it's going to be very early for that. And then the employer contribution can come as long as late as your extended due date. Okay. But remember, this does not work except for the case of a sole proprietor with no employees. And this is one you get a little worried about. Why? By doing this, and especially if I have to flag that we did it anyway, you're kind of identifying to the IRS the sole proprietors who maybe should be employees and who maybe should have to worry about the employer's plan, which might not be nearly as generous as the plan they established for themselves. So just keep an eye on this one. It's a little weird how it goes. Now we got a clarification here for a tax treatment IRA involved in a prohibited transaction. This is effective basically for tax years beginning after December 29, 22, so 2023. Generally when an IRA owner engages in a prohibited transaction with regard to the IRA, the IRA is disqualified from the beginning of the tax year. What was not clear under the current law is, remember, IRAs are sometimes all treated as one big plan for the owner, or sometimes they're treated separately. And it wasn't clear if I had, let's say, I have a self-directed IRA that I did something stupid in, right? I went out and I, you know, uh, did what was done in the case we discussed earlier this year, where I bought all those gold coins. Uh, supposing a single member LLC owned by the controlled entity, but I was the manager of that then, and I just co-mixed those coins, my personal coins. Okay, I blew that up. Now, if I had that IRA, plus I had another IRA, let's say with Schwab, that was just in standard, you know, stocks, bonds, etc., which was not really impacted by this, did my foul up by the prohibited transaction that I just did with those coins did that blow up not just the IRA that held the coins, but also blew up that IRA held by Schwab. Okay. This law clarifies that if you have multiple IRA accounts, disqualification only impacts the IRA account to which appropriate transaction rules apply. So that's probably generally considered good news, right? And now what this says though, from a planning standpoint is if you have clients that are going to do these risky things, especially self-directed IRAs, Self-directed IRAs are, they need a lot of care and feeding. Can they work? Yes. Can they work without a lot of careful guidance and people that are really good at following the rules? No. Almost certainly you'll do a prohibited transaction. So bottom line, if you have one of those though, because they're the ones always at risk of blowing up some way, I would strongly suggest that you have a separate self-directed IRA for each one of those things you're doing. 
So if you screw up one, it doesn't take the others down with it. And then number two, to the extent your IRA is going to be invested in standard brokerage accounts, just keep that with Schwab or whoever, right? Don't put that in the self-directed account, right? Have separate IRAs and keep the risky stuff apart. We have, now we bring Roth employer plans. These are basically, you know, the Roth accounts and employer plans are going to bring their distribution rules in line with Roth IRAs. And this is effective for tax reviews beginning after December 31st of 2023, so in 24. It makes designated Roth accounts in retirement plans subject to the same rules as Roth IRAs. Interestingly enough, in the Obama administration, there was a, it was a proposal to bring these in line then, but then it would have made the Roth IRAs uh, subject to the distribution rules that applied to the uh, Roth retirement plan accounts, which would be the standard RMD rules. So we just kind of reversed that. Same difference though, so we'll be there. No distributions are required during lifetime employees. And once it's inherited, then we start giving distributions out. At this ties to the next one here. This again for calendar years beginning after for calendar years beginning after December 1st, 2023. Surviving spouse can step, step into the shoes of the deceased employee and be treated as if he or she is the employee. Now, previously the spouse could go in and they could delay the distribution until their spouse would have turned the right age. Now they can step in and they can become the one and they can become the employee, which has the advantage of letting them, when they do get to the RMD dates, take a distribution based on their age and a supposed 10 year younger. They use the standard distribution tables, which will be available in this case. So it essentially allows them the same rights they have when teaching IRA as his or her own. My guess is this will mainly be of use for closely held entities. Because most larger entities, you know, basically require any time the funds go to a non-employee, even the spouse, that they will require that to be rolled out and you can transfer it to the IRA and the spouse can do whatever they want there. So I think there's probably going to be more of one we'll see on closely held companies while you might use this. Not so much what you're going to see for larger plans. We also made permanent, but not nearly as generous as it has it had been, the special use retirement funds connection with qualified federal declared disasters. Now, this is retroactive to disasters occurring after January 26, 2021, federal disaster declaration. It allows up to $22,000 be distributed for affected individuals. Note, this is far less than Congress allowed in the past. Remember, we talked about 100,000 multiple times was what was allowed to come out. It's only 22,000. Again, that's an odd number, probably a budget play, but that's what we've got. You can take that 22,000 income over three years. You can repay it. So standard rule we're used to under the COVID distributions and similar special rules for distributions to purchase a home that can be put back in as well as larger amounts can be borrowed from the plan with better repayment terms rather than a simple 50,000. So those rules are made permanent for all disasters going forward. Now, simple and sep Roth IRAs. This is brand new. Effective for tax reviews beginning after 22, which means this year, an employee can be offered the option to elect both to treat employee and employer contributions as Roth contributions to either a simple or a SEP. Now, again, if they're Roth contributions, you're going to add that SEP contribution to the employee's income. But since it will be under the plan, it won't be subject to the contribution limits, right? Or the, I should say the AGI limits on contributions. So it'll be subject to the SEP limits. So could be interesting there. 
Same with the uh, simple accounts uh, can be done that way. Now, this one is one to be worried about. Catch-up contributions. Your clients, if they're making catch-up contributions, this one will come and bite them. Probably, because I think the ones who make these tend to have incomes above $145,000. Effective for tax years beginning after December 1st, 2023. If your compensation is more than $145,000 from the company, your catch-up contributions have to be made to Roth accounts in the plan. Now, not only does that mean you're going to get no deduction, right? It's going to go into a Roth account. It also means that plans that don't currently have Roth accounts, because they consider them, because they're a pain to track. There's another thing to track in the plan, which adds to the cost. If they got to decide, do we want to kill catch-up contributions or are we going to have to put Roths into the program? So again, any employee compensation excess $145,000 for the year, their catch-up contribution is going to have to be treated as a Roth contribution. Now we'll wait to see how IRS comes out with rules on this because what's going to be interesting is, um, you know, what happens if a year in bonus pushes you over the 145 and you made your catch-up contributions earlier in the year, uh, do we retroactively go back? I mean, do we treat it as paid on the day you go over 145,000 is what I expect we'll have to do. And that means for payroll taxes and other issues, uh, it would come into that range. So again, interesting problem in that regard. Also effective immediately is plans are allowed but not required to provide employees with the right to electric treat matching or non-electric contributions as Roth contributions. If you haven't noticed, they're basically setting up all of these to allow you to do Roths, to make employer contributions into Roths if the plan allows it. Now, again, a plan does not have to do this. And I think a lot of plans won't because it's just a pain to track these Roth accounts. But yeah, that's what we've got in there. Finally, the big money raiser here, uh, and these last few have all been money raisers, but the big one was they decided to pick up something been discussed all during the year. So, but it's effective for contributions made after December 29, 2022. That's the big change what was discussed this year, because originally this is going to be retroactively effective back to when we first allowed uh, controversial, controversial, charitable conservation easements. How's that? Get that in there. So you will not be allowed deduction for a qualified conservation contribution, the easement contribution, if the deduction exceeds two and a half times the sum of each partner's relevant basis in the contributing partnership. The IRS had flagged those as listed transactions. Remember now we temporarily had them kicked out of that category, but now Congress is saying, we don't care about kicked out or not, or those court decisions. Uh, from this point forward, if you do this, you simply will not get any tax benefit. And again, it's contributions, not buying into the account. Because generally you bought in the account, they needed to hold it for a year to qualify for long-term capital gain, and then they'd make the contribution. And magically that easement was worth one, two and a half times what you paid for the land. Somehow that happened in the year. Areas decided that was kind of per se abusive. Congress says, yeah, it sounds like that to us too. So we're going to disallow it. Now there are some exceptions. It does not apply if you've held that property for more than three years. So it might make some sense how this could work if let's say that was a partnership, you know, five people in a partnership, they had bought this property back in 1961. Now, you know, they've held it all these years. Well, then the easement could very well be worth quite a bit more than the original value of the land. So that's not a problem. I have substantially all the contributing partnership is owned by members of a family. So family partnerships are exempted. 
for the contribution relates to the preservation of a certified historic structure with a whole lot of more uh, disclosure having to go in if you're going to claim that exemption, right? As I said, the big change is that it does not apply retroactively. Now, as I note, we had a lot of other things involved in this, in this particular law, and I'm going to be doing some sessions, but we kind of did this quickie less than hour summary of the 2022 of the SECURE Act, uh, basically SECURE 2.0 Act of 2022. So hopefully that gives you at least some basis and some ideas what's in here. Be sure to study up on this law. Take a look. This, this quickie is not meant, this quickie session is not meant to be anything that just covers everything you need to know by any extent. But at least it should give you some idea of where you're going and maybe enough to at least start thinking about those areas that might help or impact your clients and be going there. Otherwise, uh, take care. I will be back with regular tax updates uh, as we go through the year. But this is the one special extra version that we're doing with this brand new law Congress gave us right at the end of 2022.